your Bibles, if you want, to Matthew chapter 9. We started something a month ago today. Does anybody remember what the last Sunday of each month is going to be? Sending Sunday, huh? Torture Brian. Oh, Brian's off the hook today. Um, In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has been training disciples, and it says beginning in verse 36 that when Jesus looked upon the crowds, he had compassion on them, realizing that they were helpless and without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest, for the harvest is plentiful and the workers are, t- are few. So Dave, if you want to come up today, I drew his name out of the box, so to speak, um, And Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by the truth, Father. Your word is the truth. And then in verse 18, he says, As the Father has sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. He was sent into the world to complete the Father's work, and so are we. So, So Dave, tell us a little bit about what tomorrow would be like. We're asking people what their work week, their home week, their mother, their child, their school week, whatever that is. So what's a, what's a typical Monday like? And then tell us a typical day at Mr. Kid's Repairs. You can step closer to him if you want. All right. <laughs> well, Dave, pray with me before he sits down as we obey Christ in sending out workers into the harvest because the harvest is 
more numerous than the workers. Heavenly Father, as, as we, and we aren't the senders, you are the sender, Jesus. Father, as we obey you and obey your son, we send Dave into a repair shop tomorrow that is really only the means for him to represent Christ. So Jesus also prayed that night not to take him out of the world, but to protect him from the evil one. So I pray that for Dave as well. I don't pray for all difficulties to be removed, but I pray for all difficulties that don't bear fruit to be removed. And that Dave would be a testimony um, that someone both usual and unusual would, would cross his path tomorrow and that you would prepare him for those moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dave. Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11 as we continue our study? Romans chapter 11 is a chapter that we could spend a few months in if we were specifically trying to get much out of Romans chapter 11. We're going to go through verses more quickly than we tend to go through them on Sunday mornings to give you an overall picture of what has been lost in Christendom. Christendom is the time in which Jesus described in Matthew 13, Peter and Paul and John and Jude and James described is this time where the church is and all that is included in the world and all that is included, for example, in America where so many people say they're Christians and so many people doubt that Jesus is God at the same time and that the Bible is inerrant. So one of the things that is lost is that God's work with Israel is never going to be finished. That's good news for you and I, even though we don't know much about the Jews and Israel and God's plan, because without Israel, there's no kingdom. There's no Messiah. There's no word of God. We read in Romans 9, or chapter 3, that, that they've been entrusted with the very words of God. So the Bible you hold in your hand, the Messiah, the Christ that you believe in, the Lordship of Jesus over our lives, comes through us from a king and a kingdom, and that kingdom is a Jewish kingdom. When we get to heaven on the foundations of heaven, the name of 12 Jewish apostles will be on the foundations, and the name of 12 tribes of Israel will be on the gates through which we enter into the city, the new Jerusalem. So Paul is going to take us to the end of what he calls my gospel which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which God had always planned to come through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, this mystery of mysteries that we looked at in Ephesians 6 last week, or Ephesians 3 last week, that the Jews and the Gentiles would come together and form one body in Christ. Um, help us to better understand your overall plan today, in Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 11, we are in our third chapter of God explaining through Paul his relationship to Israel. The two aspects of Israel, there is the aspects of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and all that come from them who are known as Israel or Israelis. And then there is the second aspect within that that is the elect who are Jews. So 
we will address both in this canopy of this election of a nation, corporate election, Paul will describe individual election. How are you corporately chosen as an Israelite? You're a descendant of Abraham. How are you individually chosen? You're a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul will give us that discernment today and he will connect some dots. As I said, there is much more than we will look at today, but I feel led to give you the big picture to understand that Paul is going to take us from choosing Abraham. The gospel comes through Abraham, Paul will tell us. We'll look at in Galatians 3.8 today. It's actually announced the gospel is in the book of Genesis. And that's the gospel that Paul preaches. We will take us from there, Paul will, until a day when all Israel will be saved. And we'll understand exactly what that means as we look into God's word. Let's begin in verse 5. We left off last week. We used three examples. We used Abraham, Benjamin, and Elijah. Um, Paul from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham. And Elijah, who felt so alone as he was going against Ahab and Jezebel. And they were trying to take his life. And he felt like he was the only believer left. And God's response to him was, no, you're not. I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul tells us, and in this time, in Paul's day, there is still a remnant of Israel. And in this time, 2021, there is a remnant of Israel walking the earth that is called in Galatians 6, the Israel of God, the Messianics, the followers of the Messiah as we are as Gentiles. So we pick it up in verse 5. So too at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It is always by grace from Adam to the new heaven that a person comes into a relationship with God. Faith, grace, Um, He says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, it is by grace so that it may be by faith and it may be guaranteed. The guaranteed promise of salvation comes by grace and it comes through faith. Verse 7. What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. He he explained that in chapter 9. They thought, we'll obey the law good enough to get to heaven and we don't need Jesus. They were wrong. Now here's where he divides Israel, verse 7. What then, what the people of Israel so earnestly, sought so earnestly, did not obtain, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Here's the difference we're going to look at in the coming verses between Jesus and you and I. We are to share the gospel with everyone. We are to make no assumptions. We are going to witness at times to a person who seems absolutely never to obey, and one day something will happen in their lives. They will fall to their knees, and they will follow Jesus. Jesus is able to to look at a person and know their whole life in advance. So in the verses to come, Verse 8, Paul is quoting Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, 
in verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, and he is writing, he is speaking here, quoting David in the Psalms, chapter 69, verse 21 and 22, a messianic psalm where if you read Psalm 69, you'll say, oh, that happened at the cross. Oh, that happened in Jesus' life. Oh, that's in Romans chapter 11. A messianic psalm, there are 14 of them that are specifically about the Messiah. They are prophetic and they point to his life. And Paul is quoting the, the messianic psalm 69, verses 21 and 22. In verse 9, and David says, May their table be a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Mark, chapter 4. In your notes there, I have a statement that I want to explain. The most punished sin or the greatest reward. If I asked you the question this morning, are there levels of hell? The answer would be yes. The Bible describes that to us. When you get to the lowest, most severely punished people in hell, if I asked you what sin have they committed, what would you say? In Luke chapter 12 and about verse 47 Jesus says those who know the will of God and do not obey it will be beaten with many blows and then he goes on to say those who don't know but are worthy of being punished if, if for example Saddam Hussein didn't ever hear anything about Jesus he would be punished less than someone in a church who doesn't follow Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation, the first person who is offered multiple choices to obey God is Cain, and he says no. And Cain is immediately cursed. All through the Old Testament, we're dealing with Israel here. When someone hears God's offer and they say no, they will be the most severely punished people in hell. Think, it, think of it from God's perspective. I offer you my son. I offer for him to come and live a righteous life, die on the cross, pay for your sins, offer everything. I will adopt you as your father. I offer you everything. Follow him. No, the person says. They have to realize what they're saying no to. The offer cannot be casual and the no cannot be casual. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is explaining to the disciples what he means, and we see Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 in these verses as well. He talks about the good soil. We looked at the parable of the four soils in Luke last week. Here is Mark describing Jesus speaking in that same parable, verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. So if you answer this question from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
What is a Christian? Jesus will always describe them as a fruit bearer. In other words, if there is no fruit, there is no Christian. Christian means Christ follower. You cannot follow Christ intellectually. You have to follow him from the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, because everything you do comes from it. So that's why we must believe in our heart. Verse 9, Then Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Again, what he is saying there, if you are ready to listen, listen. He goes on, verse 10, When he was alone with the twelve and the others around him, asked him about the parables, he told them, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Jesus is saying that when I speak in parables, the person that is ready to hear, hears. And the person that is ready to judge and will not accept me and will never follow me, and I speak the same parable, the parable has the power so that they can hear it, but they can't understand. They can see it, but they can't perceive it. He says, if they would hear it, if they would say, you are Lord, I accept you as my Savior, he says, then they would be forgiven. So the message through Isaiah and Isaiah 6 that Paul and Jesus are both referring to is that if you're in a position where God knows for the rest of your life you will never trust in Jesus Christ, he will harden you. We read it in Romans 11 as a spirit of a stupor. The spirit of a stupor is, I can hear what you're saying, but it's not for me. I see what your message is, but it's not for me. In fact, Jesus, I don't need you. I'm religious. I'm good enough. I'm not a bad person. I'm happy where I'm at. God puts a curse on a people who is a person who is going to remain in that position. Turn to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples to go into Jerusalem and wait till the Holy Spirit comes on them in power. The, the word for power in that verse is dynamis, which is Jesus, when he emulated or, or power went out from Jesus to heal, to cast out demons, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit came on Jesus when... He was baptized, and the Holy Spirit stayed on Jesus, replicating what would happen to us, so that when Jesus did miracles, he did them by dynamis power. So in Acts 1, verse 8, we talked about this last week, that he says, power, dynamis will come on you when the Holy Spirit lives in you. We don't see much of that power today because we've relegated the Holy Spirit to quietness and peaceful, peacefulness and we don't see too much power in the church today. 
Peter is speaking the first sermon in the church, and he's speaking only to Jews or converts to Judaism in Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. This is the day that Jesus prophesied in chapter 1 and verse 8. We pick it up in verse 36. Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, both master, king, ruler, and anointed prophet, priest, and king, those two titles mean. Verse 37, when the people heard this, these are people who were ready to hear. Israelites, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Who's that? Gentiles. So Peter, even before he accepts Gentiles, is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit that Gentiles will be saved also. So Peter replied again, verse 38, repent and repent. If you break down the, the grammar in this verse, there are plural and singular verbs and repent goes with the forgiveness of sins. That's why in chapter 3, verse 19, he doesn't address baptism. He only addresses repentance. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, Kyrios, our God, will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So within the Israel who put Jesus on the cross, here are 3,000 who repent. 3,000 Jews, descendants of Abraham, who have been taught their entire lives to be religious, to trust the law, to believe in Moses. They've been told for three and a half years that this blasphemer, this person calling him the Son of God, is of the devil. He is demon-possessed. That's what the religious leaders have been telling them for three and a half years. Peter comes to them. The power from heaven shows up visibly on Peter, and he says, the man you put on the cross is the one who God has made both Lord and Messiah, and you need to repent, and your sins will be forgiven. And however big this crowd is, 3,000 of them repented. Forgive us, God, for putting your son on the cross. Turn back to um, Romans chapter 11. We pick it up in verse 11. Romans 11, verse 11. Paul writes, Again I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? 
He's been asking questions like this since verse 1. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, it's a, it's a name for sin, but it's a specific transgression means I'm disobeying what you told me. So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, they both sinned. Adam transgressed. Because it was God's plan that before Eve was created, he would command Adam not to eat from the tree. So Adam transgressed. Eve sinned, both guilty, but one transgressor. These people are transgressors that Paul is talking about here. Because of their transgression, Israel's, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But, Paul says, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? Paul is, for the first time in this chapter, pointing to the full inclusion of Israel. And we'll see from the Bible what he is meaning specifically. But he's asking the question, if denying Christ meant riches for the world, what will happen when Israel accepts Christ? What will that mean for eternity and for the world? Verse 13 I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. He's been saying this in all three chapters. He says in chapter 9, if the Jews as a nation would believe in Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord, I would give up my own salvation. I'm not ready to say that, but that's the passion the Apostle Paul had for the Jews. Verse 15. For if their rejection brought reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits, meaning the patriarchs, Israel, Abraham, if the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. He is talking about, and he will explain this more clearly, that the root and the dough and the branches that are original are Jews. And he had to cut off some of the branches because they wouldn't believe. But he's explaining to Gen. Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that you were taken from wild plants and you were grafted into this branch, this root. You were grafted into uh, John 4.22, salvation is of the Jews. The covenant that saves us, Jeremiah chapter 31, is a Jewish covenant. So he's, he's describing an olive tree that is the patriarchs the Jews, the first followers of the Messiah. And he's talking about branches that have come since then and they've had to be cut off because they wouldn't believe. And the Gentiles, like you and I, were grafted into this tree and he's trying to give us a metaphor that helps us understand this picture. Verse 17, if some branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior 
to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul is saying to you and I in Christendom in 2021, most all churches have replacement theology. Meaning, God is done with the Jews. He's focused on the church. They had their chance. Martin Luther said that a Jew couldn't be saved because they rejected Christ. He didn't understand Romans 11, Romans 10, Romans 9, because God will never be done with the Jews. We read after the Jeremiah covenant that God gives where he will remember our sins no more and he will take our wickedness from us and we're grafted into that. Then he says, only if the heavens above and everything I've created would completely collapse would I be done with the Jews for all that they have done to me. He is saying there, there is nothing that will take Israel from its place. Not their wickedness, not their disobedience. If an individual in Israel disobeys Jesus, they receive the same curse as a Gentile. But Israel as a nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the foundation of the gospel in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, will always be in the heart of God, the plan of God, and the future of God. So, the title of today's message is The Kindness and the Sternness of God. The kindness of God, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, is that he wants to bring you to repentance. We read Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 4. If they would repent, I would forgive them. If they refuse to repent, I will speak and they won't understand. They will look and they won't perceive. He curses everyone who has an established, immovable position, not for me. And he explained in Romans chapter 9, if that's you, God can still use you. Paul asks the question, does he not have the right to use the objects of his wrath for the objects of his mercy? The, the masterful orchestration of God to reach every person who will ever live is too big for us. But what Paul is explaining here is that Israel fell because of disobedience and rejection. Gentiles, listen up. I'm not done with Israel, number one. And number two, if you think I've replaced them with you, you're arrogant, you're wrong, and you're in danger. So the kindness of God and the sternness of God, verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell. Every person who will ever live, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, is given free will. Here's what they can choose. I'll follow him. Here's what they can't choose, the result. The sternness of God 
is that he is just. You refuse me, I love you so much, I'll allow you to. That's the sternness of God, the kindness of God. Please repent. My son died for you. I will give you everything if you will just come to me and confess my son as Lord. So verse 22, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in, in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist, meaning the Jews, in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So Jesus is speaking through Paul here. The kindness of God brings everyone to repentance, Jew or Gentile. When you come to that place where you clearly understand what God is asking you to do and you say no, then the sternness of God says, okay, you can say no, but hell is your future. And people will say today, if you ask a, a Richard Dawkins or a devout atheist, um, if, if it were true that Jesus would save you, that Jesus would forgive you and you would confess him as Lord, and if it were true that you would go to hell by rejecting him, what would you do? He says, I would reject him. So God is, in effect, giving people what they choose, but the outcome they cannot choose. Verse 24, after all, if you, meaning the Gentiles, were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Jesus is explaining this about, it'd be about 20-some, 24 years earlier, on the night that he's going to be killed, he's walking through a vineyard of olive, an olive grove with his disciples. And he says, I am the branch, I am the vine, you are the branches. Earlier he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that they will be even more fruitful. He says to them, then now you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. I've given you the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, if you remain in me, or you must remain in me. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Remember, Paul says here, you don't support the branch, the branch supports you. He says, no branch can bear fruit by itself, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Paul says, remain in his kindness here. He is preaching what Jesus preached to his disciples 24 years earlier. Jesus goes on, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in I and me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. For this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Fruit bearers, are Christians. 
Christians by name that don't bear fruit are only by name. Jesus and Paul are making that crystal clear to us. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Write this in your note, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul's first letter. And there are foundational gospel verses throughout the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, Scripture, and he's, he's talking about Genesis. Scripture foresaw that God would justify Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Genesis, this is Genesis 12, 3. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So way back, 2,091 years before Christ comes, Christ says to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. Paul says in Galatians and in Romans, that's the announcement of the gospel. That is God's forever plan. So the psalmist in in Psalm 67, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, he writes in the first two verses, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. That's a, a repeating of the gospel given to Abraham. Paul, after Jesus, is taking us back to Abraham, saying this has always been his plan. A Gentile in 2021 is in Genesis 12, 3. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. So God's love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham being pulled out of this idol-worshiping, Baal-worshiping, anti-God, Mesopotamia and this place of Ur says, I'm listening, Lord. Okay, Abraham, I want you to go to a place you've never seen, people that you don't know, you'll never inherit it, but those who live by faith will one day inherit a kingdom through you. And Hebrews says that Abraham was thinking about heaven when he left and went to Canaan. He was looking to a city whose architect and builder was God. And he saw John chapter 8 at the end of the chapter. He saw Jesus' day and he welcomed it. Abraham knew that the gospel was going to the world through him. Several years later, Abraham is told to take his only son of promise to Mount Moriah. He goes to Mount Moriah. His son carries the wood up there. God says, now sacrifice your one and only son. And he's about to put a knife into Isaac's chest. And, and Jesus says to him, Abraham, stop! And the ram shows up. He offers him as a sacrifice. And then Jesus says to Abraham, 
That's why I told you what I told you many years earlier. Because I knew there would come a day where your faith would be tested beyond human reason. And the book of Hebrews says that when Abraham was raising that knife, he had so much faith in God that he believed if he killed Isaac, Isaac would come back to life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus tells Mary. Anyone who follows me will live even though they die. Abraham believed that. So Paul is talking about his love for the descendants of Abraham, but his heaven only for those who believe. So he's explaining this in Romans chapter 11. We pick it up in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant, speaking to Gentiles. He earlier said, don't be arrogant. Here he's saying, don't be ignorant. No, in other words, don't be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is something that was hidden in God until the moment it is being revealed in Scripture, and this is the moment that God reveals this mystery. Brothers and sisters, so that you may, be, may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So this is a mystery that God opens up, 57 A.D., to the Gentiles. I don't want you to be conceited. I don't want you to be ignorant Gentiles. Please understand this, that a hardening, a spirit of a stupor, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, because they rejected me. So, because they rejected me, I put a spirit of a stupor on them, meaning it will be difficult for you to ever understand. And Paul is saying here that that hardening is on Israel until the rapture. What is actually going to happen at the rapture is to the churchgoers, the same hardening is going to be designated. So, since Luke 19, when Jesus rode in and he looked and wept over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would have known, if you, even you would have known that this is God coming to you as he's riding on that donkey down into the city, but because you haven't, I'll harden you. Your city will be destroyed. Your temple will be destroyed. So for 2,000 years... Israel has a hardening on them where it's cloudy. It's difficult to understand, even if I read the book of Romans, because they rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, rejected him. Paul is saying here, first of all, the hardening is in part. There will always be a remnant. He will never hold back a person who is willing to listen. So there are Jewish believers like Paul in his day. There are Jewish professors like Michael Rydelnik that I know today. There are Jews who are coming through the cloud to be saved. Paul is saying here that it will be lifted when the full number of Gentiles comes in at the rapture. Hold your place there and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Paul is talking about the church in the last days, people in the last days, who hear the offer and reject it. Remember from Cain all the way through, rejecting his offer when it is understood is the most severely punished sin by God. Saying, I understand what you're saying. I understand everything Jesus did. I understand what you're calling me to. No thanks. That's always the most severely punished sin. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we pick it up in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, we'll be studying that on Wednesday night in a few weeks, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance of how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders to serve the lie. He's talking about the Antichrist in the tribulation. Verse 10, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Underline this in your Bible. This is the only reason any person will ever be in hell. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Question, why will people be in hell? Sin, wrong. We'll all be there if that's true. The only reason anyone will be in hell is because they refused the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 37 to Pilate, the reason I have come into the world is to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of the truth listens to me, Jesus says. Here Paul is saying anyone who doesn't listen to him will perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now look what God does to them, same as the Jews. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Is he changing their minds? Is he deceiving them? No. They're saying, we reject you forever. Okay. Rejection is complete. I support your decision. The outcome is in my hands. The decision is yours. You refuse to love the truth. Therefore, I will send you a powerful de delusion. So in the tribulation, when they hear the Antichrist, they will follow him. They will get the mark. They will have 666 on their body. They will do what the Antichrist says. They will join his kingdom because they refuse to love the truth. So, verse 12 will be true. And so that all, from Adam to the end, will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Now to a person who is saved, verse 13, but we all ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, grace, and through belief in the truth. Who will be in heaven? Belief in the truth. Who will be in hell? I refuse the truth. It will be that simple. I didn't know. I didn't understand. No, that won't be the reason. I'm a sinner. No, we're all sinners. I didn't know what to do, so I thought about it. That's no. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, today is the day. If you hear the offer today, faith comes from hearing. Romans 10, 17. What you do next is important. I believe. 
I confess you as Lord. Go back to Romans chapter 11. Actually, turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is prophesying the entire tribulation. He does this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Go to Matthew 24, and if your Bible is open to Romans, okay, if it's not, I'm going to read to you. Paul is going to explain to us in Romans chapter 11 that a day is coming where all Israel will be saved. So the next verse, verse 26, he says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. There is coming a day where all Israel will be saved. Does that mean people will be saved without choosing the truth? No. In the tribulation, we won't have time to develop all of this in a few minutes, but we'll look at scriptures that do. Um, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, Daniel says that at the midpoint of the tribulation, you'll know it's the midpoint because an abomination that causes desolation is going to be set up in the temple. An image of the Antichrist will be put in the temple at the midpoint. Jesus would tell us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when that happens, that's the exact midpoint of the tribulation, and I'll tell you what will happen next. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, he tells Daniel at that time, Michael, the prince and protector of Israel, will arise. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is describing that moment of the midpoint of the tribulation. Verse 15 in Matthew chapter 24. So, speaking to Israel, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Here's a simple question and answer. Catholicism, Lutheranism, most religions will say, well, Daniel wasn't even a prophet. You know how I know Daniel was a prophet? Jesus called him a prophet. That's good enough for me. So, he's only, not only saying he was a prophet, he is saying what he wrote is going to happen in the future. So verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, he's quoting Daniel 9.27, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. That's what he told Daniel in verse 24. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for a for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He says in verse 20, pray that the, your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress. He's now quoting from Daniel 12, verse 1, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. These are passages for you to study more than we're going to look at them today because we don't have that kind of time. In Revelation chapter 12, what Daniel prophesied and what Jesus prophesied is happening. Again, most of religions would say that it's allegory and they, they point to 
Revelation chapter 12 as being Mary. Mary's in the chapter. She is not the woman here. Um, and we know that from verse 1, right in your Bible, near verse 1, Genesis 37 and verse 9. Because if we do, we'll know what a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We will know exactly what that is. That's Israel. Because that's Joseph's dream that he shares with Jacob, is this woman with clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet. And Joseph sees 11 stars. He's the 12th, bowing down to Joseph. And that happens in Egypt. But the woman clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet is Israel. And if we read through this chapter, it has to be Israel. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. What happens in the verses between verse 1 and here is that a war happens in heaven. Michael, who is the strongest angel created, Satan, who was created as Lucifer, now corrupted himself to be Satan, will bring all of their angels into a war in heaven. Michael will win. Satan will be cast out of heaven. The, his first order of business is to kill every Jew. Michael's order of business is to protect every Jew that is a believer. And once he is thwarted from getting all the Jews, he will go after Christians when he comes down. So Satan himself is kicked out of heaven for the last time, and we pick it up in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, Israel, who had given birth to a male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness. This is what Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24. As soon as you see the abomination that causes desolation, Get out of Jerusalem. Go to the wilderness, to a place prepared for you. Verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she will be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, quoting from Daniel. This is a year, two years, and half a year. What's that? Three and a half years. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. This is, again, John is telling us at the midpoint. Jesus says, at the midpoint, Jews have to leave Jerusalem. Because at the midpoint, the Antichrist, who is trying to kill Jews, will be joined by Satan himself to kill every Jew. Paul is explaining this to us in the book of Romans, leading up to when all Israel will be saved. So let's get to that moment. Verse 15, then the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and to sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth, earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, Christians. Followers of Jesus, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Again, how does God describe a Christian? 
those who keep his commands and hold fast to his testimony. Turn to Zechariah, right before Matthew, a couple of books, where this moment by the messianic prophet Zechariah is realized. So Zechariah, before Jesus comes, is writing about the conclusion of Revelation chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, this is the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation for 1260 days, Jews have been supernaturally hedged in by Michael. Nothing can penetrate, including Satan, the Antichrist, or any army on earth. There's a place in the wilderness where every believing Jew is gathered and supernaturally protected so that Romans 11 will be fulfilled. Verse 9, on that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. He is going to, Ezekiel 36, 27, he is going to pour the Holy Spirit on these Jews. And this is the day that Paul is referring to when all Israel will be saved. If you are a Jew on earth at the end of the tribulation and you're alive, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because every person in this wilderness gathering, gathering supernaturally protected by Michael is ears to hear Believers of God trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone outside of this protection will be killed by Satan. He will kill all the Jews and then he will go after the Christians. So Paul is writing this as we go back to Romans chapter 11. He is explaining, he, this is the culmination of the gospel, Romans chapter 11, and he is explaining how an awesome God in heaven has a plan to reach every person. There is no person who is less loved or less pursued by God than any other person. So verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, a deliverer, Isaiah 59, 20, is prophesying what we just read in Zechariah. A deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant when I will make, when I will take away their sins, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Remember, they disobeyed, but that led to our obedience so as far as israel the nation they're enemies of god for your benefit if you are a gentile but as far as election is concerned they are loved on account of the patriarchs this is the dough this is the root 
This is the tree that we are grafted into, the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Verse 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. What he said through Abraham, he will never change. His offer is for all nations, all peoples, every person. Verse 30, just as you at one time, were at one time disobedient to God, have received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Do you see the full circle here? The Gentiles, or the Jews, were meant to bring the gospel to the world. As a nation, they failed. But the Jews who believed brought it to the world. Daniel is the Apostle Paul to the world in the Old Testament. And we see that that was so effective that hundreds of years after Daniel, the first visitors to the birth of Christ are from Persia, where Daniel was. So the gospel has gone to every corner of the earth, and Paul says, when they disobeyed, that brought the gospel to you. And your obedience or disobedience will bring it full circle. So he comes to verse 32, that God has bound all men over to disobedience so he may have mercy on them all. That's God's heart. Trust the all in verse 32. Who's guilty? All. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? So that he may have mercy on us all. What is in the heart of God? All. He loves every person, every sinner, every, every person who has sinned against him. He loves in a way that will never be taken away from a believer. And his love will only be taken away if you permanently refuse his truth. So Paul concludes the gospel by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and to him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the close of Romans 11. Paul says, it's too deep. It's magnificent. He is so awesome. It's for everyone. Who has ever given to God that God would say, well, you've been so good, here's my kingdom. No, Paul says. From him, to him, and for him are all things. It's him, it's him, it's him. Lord, forever guaranteed. Let's pray. God, thank you for your awesome offer. Help us to appreciate what really happened with Abraham. The faith that led to the obedience of Abraham is offered to me. Help me to appreciate what I have enough to share it with someone who doesn't have it. In Jesus' name, amen.